Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. Hey, guys. How are you doing, Tony? I'm doing well. I could really hear you trying to come up with a pun for today's episode. The gear's returning. Yeah. <laughs> they clearly, but unfortunately, our pace, <laughs> our pace outstrepped your ability to come up with a pun. Well, that's typically the case. I'm not the uh, the pun generator on this trio. Yeah. So as we have foreshadowed a little bit, today's episode concerns a malady which is a little bit older. So if we had been physicians 100 years ago, rheumatic fever would probably have been a common occurrence in our patients. But with the advent of antibiotics and the ability to treat streptococcal pyogenes or group A strep infections, such as strep pharyngitis or strep throat, we thankfully don't see rheumatic fever all that often anymore in this age of antibiotics. There are still people who walk around with mitral stenosis and sometimes severe mitral stenosis from rheumatic heart disease. So on this episode of The Curious Clinicians, as we foreshadowed, we're going to explore why strep infections lead to rheumatic heart disease and also why rheumatic heart disease almost always involves the valves and classically the mitral valve. So take it away, Avi. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those questions that it's just steeped in medical history, but thankfully, it's one that we don't really encounter nearly as much in the antibiotic era. But as you alluded to, Hannah, you know, rheumatic heart disease is still the most common cause of mitral stenosis, and it's something you know worth understanding what's going on. And like I myself have never seen a case of rheumatic fever, even though I like had to learn the Jones criteria in medical school. But I've definitely seen patients with mitral stenosis as a result of a prior diagnosis of, of, of rheumatic heart disease. So it's certainly something that clinicians need to be aware of. Same for me. I've never seen rheumatic fever, like made that diagnosis, but I've seen the sequela of rheumatic fever a number of times, typically older patients or patients who didn't have access to healthcare. You know, when I heard, learned about this association as a medical student, I think I just sort of went in and I internalized it. There it is. And it's only recently that I've have questioned kind of what we're going to be questioning tonight, which is like, why would an infection like strep throat ultimately cause a cardiac complication and more specifically damage to the heart valves? That that, that isn't immediately intuitive. No, it's not. It's really not intuitive at all. And I, you know, it does suggest that something systemic must be going on. So when did fe- people first notice that people with rheumatic fever often developed heart disease and specifically this association with the cardiac valves? So it was a really, really long time ago, actually. So we have to go back to the late 1700s when there were some, I guess, rumblings of patients with rheumatic fever who developed cardiac complications. I couldn't find any primary sources or case descriptions. You know, I came across things like, you know, so-and-so used to teach a few years ago in the 1700s that this association existed, you know, sort of quoting what people had learned from their teachers and mentors at the bedside. But by 1832, A British physician named James Hope, who some consider to actually be the first cardiologist in the modern sense, wrote a book called A Treatise of the Diseases of the Heart and Great Vessels. And in that book, he made some foundational observations about the physiology and pathophysiology of the heart. So in that treatise, case number 24 was of a male patient who developed protracted rheumatism. And presumably from rheumatic fever. And he was treated with mercury and he and, and like a succession of blisters. And apparently he improved, but then he developed this bounding pulse and what Hope called a bellows murmur that he heard. And he developed cardiomegaly. 
And then when within a year and a half, patient uh, 24 had died. But Hope, he made this connection between rheumatism, presumably from streptococcal infection in retrospect, and valvular damage, and as evidenced by this bellows murmur that he heard on exam. As much as I want to be convinced by James Hope's description of the bellows murmur in this uh, gentleman, can you offer us something a little bit more contemporary to sort of give us this firm association, or at least like when was it more firmly established, this connection between group A strep and rheumatic heart disease? So let's zoom ahead to the first half of the 20th century, about 100 years after Hope's first descriptions. And there were several case reports that essentially followed people who developed rheumatic fever over time to see what happened to them and what complications they accrued. One study in particular from 1951, it followed 1,000 patients who had rheumatic fever as as children um, and followed them over the course of 20 years. And so of these 1,000 patients, 653 developed rheumatic heart disease. So a very high percentage of them developed it. And do we know how many of these patients had valvular involvement? You know, it was sort of hard to discern from the way they reported their data how many total had valvular involvement, but it was a really common cardiac complication. And they found that the most commonly involved valve was the mitral valve, followed by the second by the aortic valve. So 117 of these 653 patients or about 17% of them, had mitral valve involvement at that 20-year mark. The typical progression was actually a combination of mitral regurgitation and stenosis initially within the first 10 years. And then at 20 years, basically anyone had any involvement with the mitral valve had stenosis. Quite remarkable that they were able to follow 1,000 patients for 20 years, enough to get endpoints on this many having ultimately rheumatic heart disease. Also, I'm so curious, are they diagnosing this by stethoscope? (laughs) Yeah. I'm assuming like, so. They cannot have ultrasound. No, no. no. they were doing I, MRs. They were cardiac MR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming it was based on a, on exam and sort of clinical diagnosis. So I think we have to take these numbers with a grain of salt as well. Yeah, it, but you know, um, your mitral stenosis from rheumatic heart disease is not subtle. You know, when it gets severe, and, and so I imagine many of these patients were severe. But but to, to your point, Han, it also suggests that this is maybe an underestimate. There may have been people who had rheumatic heart disease that but didn't have heart failure as a result of it, but and wouldn't have ended up being captured. But you know, but I find this study compelling, and it does seem like rheumatic fever in some way causes valvular damage, mitral more than aortic. Um, so what's the mechanism? Yeah, so that brings us back to our original question, right? So the answer, it centers on two domains. The first is the concept of molecular mimicry, and the second is the notion that there are pressure gradients between the left atrium and ventricle. And ultimately, the answer is probably going to be some combination of these two ideologies, but that's uh, that's what we're here to unpack. Huh. All right. Well, they both sound interesting. Which one should we tackle first? You know, let's probably do molecular mimicry first just because it's sort of it's chewy. There's a lot of layers to this one. And just molecular mimicry is sort of fun to say. This involves the idea that two otherwise completely different factors or epitopes or antigens look similar to each other structurally, and they can sort of be mistaken one for the other by the body. And as we'll see, that can have some untoward effects. So as it turns out, there can be molecular mimicry between heart valves and antigens on strep pyogenes. Yeah, so if the idea that rheumatic fever would ultimately affect the heart seemed like an association that you you wouldn't at first blush anticipate, I certainly wouldn't anticipate that antigens on heart valves and uh, streptococcal bacterial antigens would sort of in some way resemble each other. So tell us a little bit more about that molecular mimicry between these two things. 
You would definitely not expect this, right? But a 1985 study in mice found that antibodies that targeted the streptococcal M protein also strongly reacted against cardiac myosin molecules. So M protein is a virulence factor that coats group A strep bacteria, and it helps it evade the immune system and sort of take up residence in human tissue and cause infection. So antibodies against this strep M protein also react against cardiac myosin, which is a muscle protein specific to the heart. So we may be getting somewhere. And what about the M protein and cardiac myosin make them resemble each other? So the explanation that I found was that they have similar structures called coiled alpha helices. And so I know that there's, you know, that's not unique to these two proteins in particular, but apparently the way that their coiled alpha helices are configured, that's enough for the immune system to mistake one for the other. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. When clinicians are at their best, working in medicine can be one of the most miraculous and humbling experiences. But some days it is definitely easy to get overwhelmed or feel like you are not showing up in the way that you are hoping to. Working with a therapist can help you manage the challenges and get closer to the version of yourself that you want to be. And this is true for students all the way through the most seasoned clinicians. At any level, therapy can teach positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. And therapy isn't just for those who are struggling. Anyone can benefit. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and it is entirely online. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com clinicians today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash clinicians. And now back to the episode. Okay, so there's molecular mimicry between this M protein and cardiac myosin after an untreated group A strep infection. And this sort of leads the body to make autoantibodies against cardiac myosin. Sort of is that first part, right? Yeah. Okay. And so this leads to some immune-mediated attack of the cardiac tissue and ultimately, you know, years, maybe even decades later, rheumatic heart disease. Um, so the, the assumption is that this all helps to ultimately explain the valvular involvement more specifically. Is, is that right? Well, you'd think so, but it's not entirely correct. So, you know, rheumatic heart disease can manifest in different ways besides valvular involvement. There can be myocarditis or myopericarditis, pericarditis. And I'm guessing that the myosin molecular mimicry part is probably at play there, at least partially, but it doesn't actually explain the heart valve association. And that's because cardiac valves don't contain any myosin. They have fibrous connective tissue like elastin, they have endocardium, but they don't contain any myosin. And we know that molecular mimicry is one of the main mechanisms of rheumatic heart disease and valvular involvement is really common, but myosin probably can't fully explain it. That is so interesting because I think this is one of those things that the furthest that med school goes basically in teaching you about this is like molecular mimicry and protein myosin. And I don't think anyone ever pointed out to me that there's no myosin on the mitral valve to explain the actual clinical phenotype that we see. Uh, so it's just like, what's a, what an amazing way to actually question what you learn. So I think that brings up the question then, are there other participants in this molecular mimicry dance besides just myosin and M-protein? So there aren't just two, three, 
or even four antigens at play in this molecular mimicry story, but it's probably six antigens that are relevant, two bacterial and four human cardiac antigens. So we've already talked about myosin and M protein, and the next one we need to tackle is going to be laminin. So I definitely heard of laminin, but I will undoubtedly need a refresher. So can you remind me, what is laminin? Laminin is a protein found in basement membranes, and cardiac valves contain a lot of laminin. And as it happens, laminin has structural similarities to myosin. They sort of look like each other. So it's not surprising that there's evidence that laminin also plays a role in rheumatic heart disease and contributes to this valvular involvement. There was a 2000 study from the Journal of Clinical Investigation that collected and analyzed the serum from a rheumatic heart disease patient and found that this uh, patient had made antibodies that reacted against M protein and cardiac myosin, which is not surprising based on what we've discussed, but they also found that the same antibody targeting M protein and myosin also reacted strongly to laminin. So this suggested that laminin and myosin are similar enough that molecular mimicry also plays a role for laminin in damaging heart valves in the setting of rheumatic heart disease. And do we have any histological evidence that the laminin in the heart valves is actually impacted by these antibodies? So that same 2000 uh, JCI study found that this anti-streptococcal myosin antibody, it bound strongly to laminin in the basement membranes of formal and fixed mitral valves. So I'd say that's pretty strong evidence that laminin and- It's not as strong as you It's pretty strong, right? That laminin in cardiac valves is another target of streptococcal M protein and this molecular mimicry issue. So that, yeah, I think that was that was pretty good evidence. Okay. So we've got streps M protein. <clears throat> we've got cardiac myosin and laminin. But you said there were four cardiac antigens and two bacterial antigens. So who's next? The third type of cardiac antigen that we need to discuss and that's thought to contribute to molecular mimicry are glycoproteins, which are, as their name suggests, they're proteins that have sugar moieties attached to them. And cardiac valves are sort of awash with glycoproteins. And a study from Nature from way back in 1967 found that antibodies against glycoproteins on cardiac valve tissue also cross-react against N-acetylglucosamine antigens from strep. So this is another point of molecular mimicry that's thought to lead to valvular damage in group A strep infections. All right. So we've got the strep M protein that has some mimicry with myosin and laminin. And then we have glycoproteins on the strep, which are also similar to glycoproteins on the valves. So what's antigen number four slash cardiac antigen number four, total antigen number six? Yeah. So the drum roll on the final reveal is collagen. So this one isn't really molecular mimicry, but it is thought to be relevant. And so cardiac valves contain lots of collagen, but normally it isn't exposed in an uninjured healthy valve, but with injury to the valve, some collagen gets exposed. And We've already talked about different immune-mediated mechanisms for injury, and that probably what happens is that probably exposes some of the valvular collagen. And for whatever reason, that streptococcal M protein we keep coming back to, apparently it binds to collagen and specifically type 4 collagen. And so then the next step would maybe be that this sort of combo M protein collagen has an antibody that's generated against it. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So a, a plus one study from 2009 found that the serum, the sera of patients from rheumatic heart disease contained antibodies that bound specifically to the part of type 4 collagen that M protein binds. That's pretty specific. And Rick, again, to sort of wrap up this part of the story, it's another indicator that collagen matters in this story. All right. 
So summarizing part one of explaining the connection between rheumatic fever and the mitral valve to rheumind our audience of all of the different antigens, we've learned that molecular mimicry between the M protein from group A strep and cardiac antigens, including myosin and laminin, and then also acetylglucosamine and the cardiac glycoproteins, leads to immune-mediated attack on the heart, most commonly the valves where all of that laminin is sitting, and that antibodies against an M protein binding to type 4 collagen complex also plays a role somehow. We've got pretty good histological data for all of that. We know that these cause valvular dysfunction with the regurgitation and eventually sort of mixed with stenosis. And we've got a pretty straightforward linear explanation that bridges both histological evidence and long-term, very long-term clinical data. But I want to come back to one question that we talked about earlier at the in the episode, which is, why is the mitral valve the most commonly involved valve? I think in most pathologies, we see you know, there's some physiological significance, but I don't often think of the mitral valve being all that involved. So why not the aortic valve or something? Yeah. You know, this also was sort of mysterious. Like why specifically the mitral valve? Why is it more susceptible to this chronic damage? And unfortunately, it isn't completely clear why rheumatic heart disease tends to involve the mitral valve more commonly than say the aortic valve. But one theory involves differences in shear stress across the mitral valve compared to other valves. And so the theory goes that you have this high pressure gradient between the left atrium and ventricle that may actually predispose to some initial injury to the mitral valve in the setting of you know, of, of this sort of inflammatory state from rheumatic fever, and that it's perhaps more likely to occur on the mitral valve than other valves because of these pressure differences across the valve and shear stresses. So the theory goes that this causes, this initial damage, it causes more exposure of antigens on the mitral valve compared to others, which leads to sort of enhanced autoimmune attack and valvulitis which then causes that chronic valvular damage and eventually mitral stenosis that we see clinically. There isn't much actual data to really back up this theory, but there was a 1989 study that found high rates of cortical stretching in patients with mitral valve involvement from rheumatic heart disease. So I would say this is sort of weak evidence, but it does sort of softly support the idea that pressure differences across the valve you know, may, may play a role. Yeah, one of the things I find really fascinating and in some ways, rewarding about this topic is scientists could stop at myosin and be like, okay, we, you know, there it is, myosin. That that's that's our molecular mimicry. But this example really identifies the idea that the simple explanations are often the superficial ones, and that probably every topic that we've talked about on this podcast, we're only able to identify 15, 20% of the true explanation. It's, there's so much more that's out there than we could possibly know. It's either that it's four cardiac antigens and two bacterial antigens. And it's and by the way, it's probably not that. It's probably, you know, some order of magnitude more than that. We just haven't identified all of them. Yeah, I, I find mitral rheumatic mitral valve disease so humbling and really challenging to navigate with families because people can get so sick and often they're like, you know, why did this happen to me? I had a cold that I wasn't treated for as a child. And I just like really, Avi, appreciate as I'm finishing a whole block of being on the cardiology floor, the opportunity to kind of get this ability to take a step back and remember why we do this and and like what the beauty of the physiology is and how it helps us explain things to patients. So thank you for this. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So what are your take-home points? 
Um, so the first would be that rheumatic heart disease involving cardiac valves results from molecular mimicry between on the strep side, group A strep M protein and glucosamine, and then on the human side, antigens that are present on heart valves, specifically laminin and glycoproteins, and that another purported mechanism involves M protein binding to collagen on valves and eliciting antibody responses and immune-mediated valve injury, and that mitral valve is most often affected, which may be due to increased transvalvular pressure gradients across the valve, leading to higher shear stress, more initial valvular damage, increased exposure of antigens on valves, and then more chronic valvular damage, valvulitis, and mitral stenosis. Awesome. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits via VCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.